Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Sabina Stanley. She's a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Planetary Physics at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, there's a book that she's written that's coming out called What's Inside or What's Hidden Inside Planets. Sounds like a really interesting topic. So, Sabina, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and then let's talk about your book and your current project. Sure. So I'm a planetary scientist at Johns Hopkins University. I like to study what goes on deep inside planets, especially how they create their magnetic fields. I grew up in northern Ontario in Canada. Um, I actually grew up in an impact crater, which is kind of interesting. It's a town called Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. And the impact crater essentially was created about 1.8 billion years ago when a giant meteor hit the surface of the planet, creating a huge hole that got filled with molten material from the interior. So the book, What's Hidden Inside Planets, is kind of related to that, right? It's, it's all about what do we know about what's going on deep inside our planet as well as in other planets, and why does it matter? How does it affect our experience on the surface of the Earth? Well, can we talk a little bit about Earth? What you know, What's inside it that we know of? Um, if you could assign a percentage, like what's known about the interior of Earth, like a tiny percentage or a significant amount, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, so it's, a, it's interesting, right? So Earth is one of what we would call the rocky or terrestrial planets in our solar system. So mostly made of rocks, things like magnesium silicates, and a good amount of iron, which in Earth is actually sequestered deep inside the planet in the iron core. The same thing is true for the other terrestrial planets like Mercury, Venus, Mars. Our moon is like that as well. So the problem, though is that it's really hard to study the inside of rocky planets in particular. The deepest we've ever sort of drilled inside Earth is about six miles, right? And the actual radius of the Earth is almost 2,000 miles. So you can think of it as we've basically just like barely scratched the surface when it comes to studying or getting evidence of the interior of the Earth. Luckily, there are all sorts of indirect ways that we can use to study the interior of the Earth. It usually involves being a little sneaky, kind of figuring out how the interior of the Earth is sending its secrets to the surface. Uh, and it's a little bit like how doctors kind of work to figure out what's going on in the human body without kind of cutting you open and everything. What about sampling volcanic eruptions and the magma and stuff or deep sea vents? That might be like a biopsy, essentially, of the Earth. So that's, that's a great point. So volcanic eruptions, when they bring magma to the surface of the Earth, some of that magma comes from very near just underneath the surface. Some of it comes that's traveled all the way from the bottom of the mantle of the Earth, the rocky part of the Earth, and has come up. But once it comes up to the surface, it's depressurized, it's changed temperature. So the materials are actually quite different when they get to the surface from what they're like deep in the interior of the planet. So that's the struggle. How do we study what goes on when you're a thousand miles down and your temperatures are thousands of degrees and your pressures are millions of atmospheres? But I mean, if some of it was liquid and it remains liquid, and maybe you get a sample that's not exposed to air, would it still not be somewhat close to what it was? So I'm so glad you 
just ask that. So here is a common misunderstanding of the deep interior of the earth. The rocks in the mantle of the earth, if you go down 2,000 miles below the surface of the earth, the rocks are solid. Even though when we have magma coming up at the surface, it's liquid, that's actually because rock, when it gets near the surface, depressurizes so quickly that it expands and becomes liquid. So all of the rock inside the steep interior of the earth, all solid. Now that's different when you get into the iron core, but for the sort of mantle layer, all solid. So it's like a superheated rock, but because of the pressure, it's solid instead of liquid. Exactly. Exactly. So we can't even kind of take the rocks and make them behave like they do in the deep interior here at the surface. Wouldn't it be kind of like like glass? You know, uh, it's a solid, but it lows like incredibly slowly because of the high pressures and temperatures. So you're absolutely right that the rocks inside the earth low and it that's through a process called mantle convection. And it it's responsible for everything from plate tectonics, which creates earthquakes and then volcanoes near the surface of the earth. Uh, it's also responsible for the r- removal of heat from the deep interior of the earth, which allows us to have a magnetic field generated in the core. But it's all moving around. But rocks are, they're not glass in the interior of planet. What we end up learning when we're dealing with sort of materials is that they have different phases. And we're used to phases like solid, liquid, gas. But there are actually a whole lot more phases that materials can have. And it's all about what crystal structures the minerals and the rocks have. And so there are all sorts of different phases of minerals deep inside the planet. What kind of phases? That's interesting. I've never heard of, um, you know, I've heard of gas, liquid, plasma, you know, but what does it look like? So here's the great thing, right? When you have a rock, rocks are made of minerals and minerals are sort of complicated combinations of molecules. And when you take a molecule, let's say, let's take as an example, water, H2O, right? If you take water and you have it liquid on the surface or of the earth, right? You have sort of a typical understanding of what the molecules are doing. But if you take water and you squeeze it really hard, or you make it really cold, then it becomes a solid. But the H2O molecules bond together in a very specific way. Now, if you change the conditions, if you make it even higher pressures or even lower temperatures, the actual crystal structure of the molecules change as well. So there's all sorts of phases of ice, water ice. There's up to like ice 19, I think, right? So there's all different ways that the orientation of the crystal structures can change. The same is true for magnesium silicates, which make up most of the rocks that we're familiar with on the surface of the earth, their crystal structure inherently changes as they get under higher pressures and temperature. So things maybe like van der Waals forces may be radically increased or hydrogen bonding occurs or, you know, all different, yeah. I mean, different kinds of chemistries, right? Yeah, exactly. It's all about a mineral wanting to be in its lowest energy state given its surrounding environment. So how do we know what's going on 2,000 miles below the surface? So, I don't know if we're using ground penetrating radar or what What kinds of um, spectroscopy or measurements can we do? Yeah, we do all sorts of different things. And the idea is you use whatever measurement you can and you try and develop a picture. You build a picture from all these different methods. So I'll talk about a few. First of all, uh, seismology has been really important for Earth. We have earthquakes. They create waves that go throughout the planet of the Earth. And the speed of the waves is completely dependent on the material properties. of, So the density of the material and other properties. So we can actually analyze what times these earthquake waves hit different parts of the earth to determine what the material that it traveled through was like. So that's one way. Another way is to use gravity. So we're all used to, if we're doing sort of remembering back to our physics classes and you're doing your problem sets with gravity, you're probably using a value of gravity of like 9.8 meters per second squared or something like that. But the reality is that gravity changes 
everywhere you walk on the earth and there are slight variations in gravity. We're talking about very, very tiny bits of a percent of gravity every time you walk around. And it's all about the density, the mass that's right below your feet. So we can look at differences in the gravity as you walk around the surface of the earth to figure out the differences in the masses below you. And that tells you something about how, what earth is composed of as well. The last method is my favorite method that I'll talk about is magnetic field. So we have this beautiful magnetic field that surrounds us here on Earth. It shields us from horrible cosmic rays and solar wind particles that are really high energy, rate, cause radiation damage. But this magnetic shield that we have is generated deep inside the planet in the Earth's core. So we can watch how the magnetic field around us changes and use that to infer what's going on deep inside the Earth in the iron core. How do you know things such as uh, the rocks are rocks instead of uh, being liquid? How can you tell that? Great question. Uh, turns out that seismology is our friend for this. There are certain types of seismic waves that cannot travel through liquids. So when we see certain seismic waves arrive at different parts of the Earth, we can actually kind of backtrack them and realize what areas of the interior of the Earth are liquid versus solid. Uh, can you tell the shape of the rocks that are down there or just that there's rocks? So what do you mean by shape? Well, like, is there a way using any of the spectroscopy to look at the boundaries of individual objects to see the, you know, the shape or the morphology of the rocks, the size gotcha. of them. spherical, are they jagged, are they huge, are they small? Right. So on the surface of the earth, we're used to like picking up an individual rock. But what you want to picture in the deep interior of the earth is you basically just have a sea of rock, right? It's a sea of minerals that are all together. So there aren't these like chunky bits of rock that you can pick up. It's just a sea of minerals, a solid sea of minerals, but it's a sea of minerals. But those minerals can change phase like we talked about before. So you can't really see shape interior. What you can see, though, is patterns in the seismic waves that tell you about, say, the density of the rocks in certain areas. And in fact, we can see when there are big hot spots in the interior of the earth or big cold spots in the interior of the earth because materials, when they're hotter or colder, change their density. So we can see volcanic plumes coming up from deep. And we can see slabs, which are the parts of the surface of the Earth that have subducted into the Earth. We can see those reach all the way down to the core mantle boundary. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, is there, is there any spectroscopy that can tell us what the boundary is between individual rocks or masses would look like? So spectroscopy, turn, it's a great thing you mentioned spectroscopy. So spectroscopy is really a method that uses light to learn about what's going on in, the, in a, an atmosphere, for example, of a planet. Because the terrestrial planets are opaque, we cannot, if we cannot see into the Earth, then spectroscopy is not going to help us. So spectroscopy is not actually a method that we're able to use to study the interior of the Earth. But again, using the methods that are available, what can we tell about these boundaries between structures deep down there? Yeah, great question. So we know that there are different layers inside the Earth. So the Earth is kind of like an onion, right? And as you go deeper and deeper, you get different layers. So for example, 
we have the crust here on the surface, and those are rocks that have particular composition, particular amounts of silicon in them, for example. And then as you go deeper, we have phase changes that occur, and those cause very sharp boundaries as you get to a certain depth. So for example, at 660 kilometers depth, there's a phase change in minerals, and they're different below that. And then the core mantle boundary, which is about 2,000 miles down, is this huge, distinct region in the Earth. And we can see seismic waves that bounce off that boundary. Because the iron core is liquid, we can see that certain waves can't pass through there. So we can really use seismology to figure out where the different boundaries are in the Earth. Oh, so we can see where the boundaries are, but we can't look within a given layer to see, again, like what the boundaries of different rocks would be. Don't think of it as individual rocks kind of all stuck together. Think of it as a a sea of rock. It's, it's like one entire layer of rock. But I would guess of uh, different mineral concentrations would constitute gradients within it that would mm-hmm. move and convect. And do we have any idea what that looks like? Is it just like a, an ultra slow moving fluid that has currents within it of mineral concentration? So we think mostly it's fairly well mixed for a lot of stuff, right? So you have a certain amount of magnesium silicates, you might have magnesium oxides, iron oxides, but it's all sort of mixed. And we can't really see individual boundaries between those with these methods. It's more that we can tell from the density how much of each of those are down there. And sometimes you can a little bit from the composition, but it's mostly that we're seeing these phase changes. We're seeing when perovskite, for example, um, which is a magnesium silicate, changes from one crystal structure to another. Well, I know it's not even, I know, we're, you know, it's funny, we literally are scratching the surface of the earth. That's all we can do. It's just so deep. But, you know, even the really deep boreholes, could they be used for anything? You know, one that went like 10, 12,000 feet deep. Has anyone thought about setting up instrumentation along the length of these like super deep boreholes to do some studies to see what we can figure out? Absolutely. And in my book, What's in Inside Planets, we actually talk about what we've learned from, for example, the Kola Super Deep Borehole, which has gone the deepest inside the Earth's surface. So about eight miles down. So you can learn about things. You can learn about what the temperature is like as you go down. And that tells you a little bit about what the temperature structure will be like deeper in the planet as well. We can learn about some of the phase changes that happen in the crustal part of the Earth the outermost layer of the earth. We've really studied that. We haven't yet gotten to the mantle. We can't dig down to that next layer. So that's really been the challenge, but those are very useful. There's another related way that we can kind of learn about the deep interior. And that's that once in a while, we're very fortunate that diamonds come to the surface of the earth from deep inside. And diamonds are kind of cool, not just because we like them in, in jewelry or because they're really great in actually scientific instruments, but diamonds sometimes have impurities in them. So little bits of liquid or other mineral that's stuck in the side of them. And because it's stuck inside of them and diamonds are so hard, when they get to the surface, the material doesn't decompress that's inside them. And so we can also learn a little bit about what the materials are like deep inside the earth by seeing these inclusions, these things that are stuck in the middle of diamonds when they come to the surface. So what are some things that have been observed and inferred? Yeah. So one interesting finding is that there's actually probably a significant amount of water deep inside the planet. So this has been a really open question for Earth is, you know, we know how much water there is near the surface. We can measure how much water is in the oceans and the atmosphere, but how much water is there deep inside the Earth, right? And it's really hard to tell that. But when we have some of these diamonds that come up, we have found diamonds that we know come from fairly deep inside the Earth into the mantle that actually have water in them. And we can use that to kind of infer how much water 
is inside the earth. Now, the reason that's important is because the earth constantly recycles itself through plate tectonics. So when we have volcanic eruptions bringing material from the interior to the surface, it actually brings up volatiles like water. And we think, in fact, this is how we got a lot of the water onto the surface, right? So it's really important to understand how much water is deep inside the planet because eventually that water gets to the surface. Interesting. You know, I was thinking, what if we, to get a leg up on things, you know, what if we went to like the Marianas Trench and then did some horizontal drilling? You know, I guess to do vertical drilling from there would be yeah. tough. Or that, then I thought, wait a minute, what about like Mount Everest or a super tall mountain? If you did horizontal drilling near the base and you got to the heart of the mountain, essentially you might be able to like quote unquote cheat and recreate the pressure conditions and maybe the temperature conditions at the center of a mountain. But let's say it's like, I don't know, you know, 30,000 feet high. Would that be able to tell you anything if you drilled inside in ways to observe? So I like the way you think. So not with Mount Everest so much, but it turns out that there are a few places on the earth where because of plate tectonics, some bits of mantle, that next layer deep inside the earth, have actually come up to the surface of the earth. And so we can study that too. The problem with that is once again, as soon as that, those mantle minerals come up to the surface of the earth, they depressurize and they become different what they would naturally be kind of on the surface of the earth. So we're still missing that ability to study sort of the mantle in its natural environment, right? It's sort of like studying nature in its natural environment, animals in their natural environment. We can't, once something comes to the surface of the earth, it's really hard to study what it would be like in the deep interior. You know, I don't know if we can, can we do a lab experiment where we create you know, incredibly high pressures and temperatures and then slowly or quickly depressurize or cool it down. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So there are some amazing work going on with experiments nowadays to try and do this. Uh, the There are a couple of challenges. So first of all, one thing we can do is we can actually take a mineral and put it in kind of an anvil press where you squeeze it between two diamonds and you just squeeze it really, really hard. And very recently, technology has allowed us to do experiments at pressures that are pretty close to what they are deep inside the earth. The problem is we can't do that and get the temperature the same as well. On the other side of it, we can use these giant laser-based experiments that happen at, at big collider facilities in the U.S. and elsewhere to shock materials. And when you shock materials, you can shock them to really high temperatures but they turn out to be too high temperatures for what we need deep inside a planet. So it's really hard to get the conditions just right in experiments, but people are working on it. And I think we're making really great progress there. Well, what if you had material between an anvil and then you came in laterally with laser light? You know, you'd get compression in one dimension. The yeah. laser light would be perpendicular to it, but could that combo do it? So there are experiments that do that, that use a combination of the sort of what we call the diamond anvil static experiments and then shine lasers on them to heat them up. But again, they're not yet able to get to those conditions that we need in order to study them. Well, how far away are they? Like, what are the conditions? How, how many atmospheres and what temperature and what are we getting to? Just to a number of comparisons on both. Yeah, the pressures we're getting to are... So I'll quote some numbers, like close to millions of atmospheres that like, so the at the core mental boundary, for example, of the Earth, the pressure I can give it to in gigapascals is about 130 gigapascals. We can now reach those in diamond animal presses. So that's that works. A bit of a challenge with that, though, is that if you want to do this, you have to take diamond and squeeze the material between the tips of diamond. Now, the tips of diamonds are kind of small, 
And so the material you're squeezing also has to be kind of small. So you have a very, very tiny sample, microns, and you put it in there and you squeeze it. And there's only so much you can learn about the material when you only have that little of it there. So that's one of the challenges. But the laser heating of those samples, that is work that is ongoing. People are working on that. It's just a really challenging technical setup. Well, what about a, a more flat anvil with like a diamond, you know, chemical vapor deposition deposited layer? you know, like a diamond sandwich, but flatter would that work? Let's say it's uh, even, you know, one inch square. Is that possible? Yeah. And so when you're trying to think about how materials experience pressure in the deep interior, they experience what we would consider like a homogeneous or isotropic pressure that pressures the same in all directions. So you can't really just squeeze from one dimension and not from others. That would actually be a different environment that would almost put a different type of stress on the minerals than what actually happens inside the earth. People do experiments like that. In fact, it's a lot of the basis for experiments trying to understand what happens when explosions happen, for example, and how to create better safety gear for people and things like that. Experiments like that happen, but they don't really tell you about what goes on with the minerals deep inside the earth. Yeah, but the ones that get squeezed out, though, I mean, that's not isotropic you know it's it almost kind of is like what i'm describing it wouldn't ooze out both sides or radially but it would ooze out one way you know the pressure is pushing it up and it's depressurizing and expanding but it's expanding it to something so wouldn't that actually in terms of you know what changes in expansion wouldn't that be a more accurate representation so unfortunately not right so it's different if you just squeeze in one dimension and stuff just expands, squeezes out in the other dimension, right? Like you just tried to make a peanut butter sandwich and you squeezed your bread and all the peanut butter goes out the sides. It doesn't experience any pressure because it's been able to escape out the sides. So in order to really take a mineral and say, what, how do we squeeze this on all sides? So we're really forcing it into a smaller volume. You have to squeeze from all sides so that nothing can leak out. Well, again, couldn't you have diamond above, diamond below, and then maybe the sides are diamond, but at some point when the pressure gets great enough, those sides cave, you know, like give way. So now you do get maybe up to a certain pressure and that it blows and now it flows out the sides and maybe that would recreate it, a sudden change like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, experiments like that aren't going to be able to do what I think you're trying to get them to do with that. But I should put you in contact with some of my experimental friends. I think they'd love to hear your ideas. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. from the armchair, trying to figure it out, but okay. So what about other planets? How do you even know what's, what's in them? You know, them being, you know, so many miles away. So yeah. Far away. Yeah. So it turns out that a lot of the methods that we use on earth, we can also use on other planets. Sometimes we can do it with spacecraft in orbit. So we've orbited Mars, we've orbited the moon, we've orbited Mercury and Venus. And all, with all of them, we've been able to measure the gravity field of these bodies. We've also measured magnetic fields on these bodies. Those are one some of the ways. Now, what we'd really like to do is have seismology on other planets. That's more challenging because you actually have to put a seismometer, an actual instrument, on the surface of the planetary body. And we've only now done that on Earth on the moon, and very recently because of the Mars InSight mission on Mars. And from the Mars InSight mission, we've actually learned a lot about the deep interior of Mars because we've been able to study Mars quakes. Oh, okay. What do you see from looking at the Mars quakes? So from the Mars quakes, we've actually been able to determine sort of an interesting formation question about Mars. There's always been this question of how big is the iron core in Mars? And what's it made of? In addition to the iron, what else is in there? And the latest measurements from the Mars InSight mission showed that the core of Mars is actually a little bit bigger than we thought it was, but that means it also has to be a little bit lighter for the planet to weigh the same, which we already knew ahead of time. So the core has a lot more elements. We don't know which ones, but some combination of hydrogen, sulfur, silicon, these lighter elements than iron. And so it has more of those than we expected. Now, the problem with that 
is that if you think about how planets form, we know that in the early solar system, there were a bunch of materials that coalesced into planets. And we don't think that there was enough of that, those materials that to go into the deep cores of planets like this. So it's a little bit interesting. Mars is kind of presenting us with a little bit of a conundrum right now. Another interesting finding that just got released about a month ago is that not only is there a molten iron core and a solid rocky mantle in Mars, but squeezed right in between them is actually a molten mantle layer. So there seems to be some amount of molten rocks at the very bottom of the mantle in Mars. Okay. Does the composition of other planets seem to be very different? Is it just layered differently or are the minerals different? You know, what can you say safely is the same and what is different generically? Yeah, I like to compare the different planets in the solar system, kind of like comparing members of a family. They have some similar genetics, but not exactly the same, right? So the rocky planets, for example, we all know that they're dominated by having magnesium silicates and some amount of iron at the center, but the relative amount of iron to the magnesium silicates can be quite different. Mercury has a huge iron core and very little rocky iron magnesium silicate layer above it, whereas Earth and Venus seem to have a similar amount. And Mars, too, seems to have a little bit more than Earth and Venus relative to the size of it, but not so different. The moon, on the other hand, has a very little iron in the interior and is mostly just a rocky planet with a very small core. Again, mineral composition, is it very different or you can really only tell very, very generic type things like... Uh... I guess in the moon, we've gotten samples back. Has that helped inform anything about, I guess they call the regolith, the surface? Does that tell you anything about the inside? Yeah. The, so the actual amount of minerals is pretty similar on all these bodies, right? There's certain amounts of magnesium silicate, certain amounts of iron. They might relative, like slightly different percentages, let's say, of even or less common minerals, right? There might be slightly different amounts of sulfur in certain bodies, amounts of oxygen, things like this. That all sometimes depends on the conditions that the planet was formed in, right? So different temperatures at different distances from the sun can affect how chemistry happens in the rocks, right? So all of that matters, but they're all slight, small differences, right? Now from the moon, these samples we've gotten from the moon, that's actually told us a lot about what the moon rocks are. And the amazing thing about it is that we've learned that the moon is essentially made from the same stuff Earth is. So this is really kind of makes sense when we think about how we think the moon formed. We think proto-body, something about the size of Mars, slammed into Earth in its very early history and ripped off a bunch of the surface of the Earth as well as the proto-body that hit it, sometimes called Theia. And that material formed a disk around Earth, which eventually coalesced into the moon we have today. So the material of the moon used to be material in the Earth. Interesting. What other planets do we have uh, much or any knowledge about? Anything on the further out ones, you know, Neptune or Jupiter or any of that? Yes. So we have sent missions to all four of the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And they've told us a lot about those planets. And right now, the Juno mission is at Jupiter studying its interior by doing gravity and magnetic measurements. And what we've learned about the giant planets that's really interesting is we thought initially that we understood how they layered on their inside. We thought there was probably going to be like a rocky core at the center and then a huge hydrogen gas layer surrounding it. And it turns out that it's not that straightforward. The rocks in the deep interior and the hydrogen seem to be mixed a lot more. And so people are now talking about what we call a fuzzy core. So there seems to be almost like a dilute immersion of the rocks and the hydrogen. And again, that's because the high pressures down there and the high temperatures 
change how materials interact with each other and behave. Any planets we've looked at that just are like a bewilderment or they're really, really strange, at least from initial measurements? Personally, I think all the planets are strange, but that might be my own perspective. I think there are some really fascinating planetary bodies out there that we want to go learn a lot more about. One of them, my favorite to talk about is Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. And Titan is really interesting because it has a very thick atmosphere like the Earth does. And it's a nitrogen-based atmosphere like the Earth does, right, has, right? And the surface of Titan, the pressure there is fairly similar to the surface pressure on Earth. It's about one and a half Earth atmospheres on the surface of Titan. Now, what that means is that the conditions are just right on Titan for there to be liquids that flow on the surface. So Titan has seas, it has rivers, um, it has mountains as well. Now, the catch is those seas and rivers aren't made of water. They're made of hydrocarbons, things like ethane and methane. So it's a different liquid that flows on the surface of Titan. But we think there might be the right conditions on Titan for life, for example, to form. So the same sorts of ingredients that we think are were important on Earth for life to form here, having complex molecules, having energy sources, having a solid surface for things to kind of do complex chemistry on, all of that is on Titan. So the Dragonfly mission, which is a NASA mission that's being built right now, is going to go to Titan and hopefully learn a lot about what goes on on the surface of Titan. So of the other planets or uh, moons or planetoids, the one that's most similar compositionally is the moon to Earth. Even that's not very similar. So the moon is fairly similar to the rocky layer of the Earth. The moon, because it doesn't have a core, if you just did like a bulk average composition, is not very similar because there's very little iron in the moon. Venus is probably the planet that's most similar to Earth in terms of composition and in terms of size, actually. So it's also fairly close in terms of distance from the sun, right? So the, Venus has actually kind of grown up in a similar environment as the Earth has and has had very, very similar materials that it's made of, which is really interesting because Venus doesn't look a lot like Earth, right? Venus is quite different. It's got a very thick, high-pressure carbon dioxide atmosphere. The temperatures at the surface are like 900 degrees. The planet rotates incredibly slowly. So Venus is a very different place than Earth. There's no water on Venus, right? So it's really, I think, important to recognize how fragile in some ways the conditions are on Earth, right? The, re the reason Earth is such a lovely planet at the moment for us to live on are is because of the temperature at the surface and the water that's around that we can use. But you know, you take this planet that's made up of very similar stuff to the Earth, you move it slightly in a different location, you give it a slightly different history, and poof, it's a completely different planet inhospitable to life. So the Earth is, even after all these observations, very unique and balanced on the head of a pin, or how would you characterize it? Yeah, I think I would characterize it that way. It is very unique. We have not found another Earth out there. There are searches going on for planets that are orbiting other stars, what we call exoplanets. And people are looking for, are there sort of analogs to Earth out there? Is there an Earth 2.0 there? And we found some rocky planets out there that are similar in size to Earth. We found some planets that are receiving the same amount of radiation, say, as Earth does. That might have the same gravity. And right now, the JWST telescope is really going to be providing us with some interesting information about what the atmospheres of these rocky exoplanets are made of. And we might be able to learn that there are planets out there that have similar environments as Earth, but we haven't found it yet. And going back, when you talked about water being, I guess, inside the mantle, or what's the estimate on the amount of water? I think you said it was uh, equivalent to all the water on Earth, or do we have any idea? Yeah, so the estimates 
are so you should they change regularly but there's probably more water in the inside the earth than there is on the surface of the earth really yeah wow how much more like double triple or who knows yeah it could be double or triple yep wow and you said some places on the earth somehow there's still mantle how does that happen how does something so deep surface yeah great question so the surface of the earth made up of these tectonic plates, right? We sit here on the North American plate. At the boundaries of these plates, where the plates are all moving around, sometimes they crush into each other, and that causes one of the plates to go up while the other plate goes down. That's how we form, for example, giant mountain ranges like the Alps, right, is from two plates crushing into each other and the material having to go up. But sometimes when material goes down on one side, it can lift up material on the other side. And sometimes because of plate tectonics, Stuff that was at the bottom of the ocean, sea floor from long ago, is now high up in mountains because the surfaces have all been moving around and been subject to these forces from these plates surrounding them. So in a few places, and actually right here in Maryland, where I am from, parts of the mantle actually come up to the surface and where we can study them. And that's from the deep past, from tectonic activity that happened in the deep past. Is it pretty rare that uh, parts of the mantle get, like, how do they get shoved up so far and, you know, so they come to the surface? Yeah, forces of plate tectonics are quite strong. And, you know, you take a whole lot of rock and you push it into a whole bunch of other rock and you can cause all sorts of crumpling to occur. So it doesn't happen everywhere on the earth, but there's a ring of area that's that's kind of on the east coast of the U.S. and goes up and around and even over to Europe that has some of these rocks that kind of got pushed up from the mantle. Interesting. Okay. This has been a really cool call, Sabina. Can you restate the title of your book and when's it coming out? It sounds incredibly interesting. I'd like to, you know, listeners to know how they can get it. So what are some details about it? Absolutely. The book is called What's Hidden Inside Planets, and it's coming out on November 14th. Okay. Well, very good. Sabina, what's another way for people to find out more about your work in particular? Where can they go? So I have a website, sabinastanley.com. That's kind of a great place to start. I talk about my work there and, and the work of my research group there. Okay. Very good. sabinastanley.com. Okay. Sabina, it's been a great call. Very, very interesting. And thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.